0: You are listening to a message from Foothills Church in Miraville, Tennessee. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com. There are really only two approaches to life. Uh, the first approach is the outside approach. And this approach to life uh, says that the, the, the true meaning of life, the true satisfaction that's available in life is based on what is outside. It's based on the things that you can see, on the things that you can touch, on the things that you can hear, on the things that you can feel. And if this is the approach to life that you take, it means you will put a great focus on external things and on outward appearance. And I would say this is uh, without a doubt the approach that our culture takes to the purpose and meaning Of life. And and one small way that we see this uh, is in some statistics that I saw this week on plastic surgery. In 2015, in America, people spent uh, over $13 billion on plastic surgery, and that is 15.9 million people in America got plastic surgery. Now, that's nothing in comparison when you think about the billions and billions spent on fashion, spent on accessories, grooming products, and, and I'm not saying that that's bad, right? I'm not saying that those things are inherently bad, but what I think you have to see is that our culture is obsessed with appearance, and the fact that this is an obsession is that so much of that and so much of the external things are paid for with money that we don't actually have. Uh, So last uh, year, the average American had uh, $16,000 in credit card debt. That totals $733 billion in America, and that doesn't even cover the over $9 trillion in mortgages and auto loans. And so here's the deal. We are are largely, as a culture, focused on an outward approach to life, uh, and that leads us to spend great deals of time, energy, and money, often that we don't even have, On outward things. But there's also a different approach to life. This is the inner or the inside approach. And and this approach would say that life is ultimately a matter of the heart. That ultimately, what matters, where meaning, significance, satisfaction lie, uh, is ultimately inside of us in things that are unseen. And if you look at Scripture, you'll see that there is a war that is being waged inside of our hearts between these two approaches to life, and and sometimes we go back and forth from one or the other, but there is a battle, and we must be careful to keep ourselves from being consumed and obsessed with the outer approach to life. And we must intentionally cultivate this inner approach to life that focuses on the heart, and and this is what we're going to be seeing this morning in our passage of scripture. So, if you have your Bibles, if you would open them to First Samuel sixteen, oh, being the Old Testament this morning, we're beginning our sermon series on uh, the life of David. Very excited to begin that. Uh, this morning, David is, is one of the most uh, epic, one of the most exciting characters of all of Scripture. And the passages that we'll be looking at are, are incredible uh, and, and just so much excitement. And, and uh, we're going to learn so much about ourselves and even our church from the life of David. So excited to begin that this morning. 1 Samuel 16, beginning in verse 1, reading down through verse 13. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? Or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. Hear this. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Amminadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful this morning for the gift of your word. We confess that we are people who struggle back and forth uh, with seeking after. Uh, life in the outward things, and yet sometimes struggling to cultivate a desire for the inner things. But we thank you that you have uh, not left us in our ignorance, but you have shown us the truth. And so our prayer this morning is that you would, through your spirit, enable us to see that truth from your word, that we would make that the authority in our lives, and that you would enable us to respond in obedience. And so Father, we pray for that. We pray that this time we'll bring glory and honor to our King Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, let me catch you up a little bit on the bigger story uh, of 1 Samuel that we've uh, missed out on jumping in at at chapter 16. So before this, you've had the people of Israel, and they um, have been following judges. And there's been all these different judges and and very fascinating uh, material there. But basically, the judges have not worked out well. And so the people of Israel say, we want to have a king because we want to be like the other nations. The other nations have kings, and it seems to go well, and so we want one of those. And God's response is, uh, I'm your king, right? I'm the one who, who I have, have given you authority, and I'm, uh, you're to be ruled by me, respond to me, follow me as king. And they're like, yeah, we know, but... We want a king that, that is big, we want a king that we can see, we want a king that will lead us into battle, and, and ultimately God says, okay, you're going to regret this, but I'll give you a king. And so God works through a prophet named Samuel, we see Samuel a lot in this passage, and Samuel ultimately goes and chooses a king based upon the opinions and desires of the people, and so Samuel goes and he finds a man named Saul. And Saul is the obvious choice for king. He's tall, he's handsome, uh, he's powerful, he's smart. Uh, he's, uh, he's the guy that every college is like drooling to give a scholarship to. And so Samuel says, okay, clearly this guy is the king. And he appoints him as king. And initially it goes okay, but over time what you see is, is Saul ultimately does not serve the people or serve God, he serves himself. And his arrogance and his pride and his selfishness uh, lead him to uh, to basically abuse the people who are following him and ultimately lead him to reject the commands of God over his life. And so what we see uh, when we come to this passage today is that God says, because of this, uh, I have rejected Saul as king. And he goes to Samuel and he tells Samuel, okay, you need uh, to go and, and to give this message. And Samuel is depressed, right? Samuel is overcome with grief because he loved Saul. He, even though Saul had his blemishes, uh, ultimately Samuel believed in Saul. He, he wanted to see Saul turn things around to become the king that followed God, that led his people well. And now it's, it's apparent that this is not going to happen. And so Samuel is grieved, uh, he's, he's in his house, he's he's discouraged. And this is where our passage picks up this morning, is God comes to Samuel. And ultimately he addresses his grief. And I think what happens so often that's happening to Samuel that can easily happen um, in our own lives is that grief can paralyze us, right? So often grief can can Come into our lives, and many of you have experienced grief. Some of you, I'm sure, are experiencing grief even this morning, and you know the effects that grief can have. It can stop you in your tracks. It, it can can keep you, ultimately, from accomplishing the plan that God has for you if you allow it to, to stay. Now, now, grief obviously is healthy. It's okay to, to go through that process. It's, it's right. But there is a time in which you need to move on. There's a time in which when you realize it's keeping you from doing what God has, has called you to do in your life, that it needs to be overcome. And, and that's basically what God is doing. He's coming to stand and say, and saying, it's time now. And, and it reminds me of, uh, I have a, a son who's 18 months old, and he likes to carry his blanket around, as many little boys do. And what that leads to often is what? Tripping, right? I feel like all the time he's stepping on his blanket, slipping, hitting his head on something, and then he'll start crying. And so I'll go and I'll pick him up and I'll look and make sure, you know, nothing's bleeding or seems to be broken. He's okay. And, and then I'll say, okay, you're okay, right? And I'll put him back down. You're okay. Give him a little good game pat and, and send him on his way because, because he's okay. I want to encourage that and not just have him just stay there and cry forever. And I think this is what God's doing. He's saying, okay, come on now, Samuel. Right? I, I get that you're sad, but, but I have a plan. I have a purpose for you, and you can't just sit here in your grief forever. It's time for action. But Samuel's not only dealing with grief in this passage. He's also dealing with fear because after God kind of says, okay, let's go, he says, well, wait a minute. If Saul finds out that I'm going on the mission, so, so the mission that God was sending Samuel was to go find a new king, to go to Jesse's sons in Bethlehem and find a new king. And, and Samuel says, if Saul finds out, I know how he treats his enemies. He will kill me, right? And so he now experiences this fear. And I think also a, a, alongside grief, fear can be one thing that, that keeps us from doing what we know God's called us to, right? Maybe, maybe you know there's a person, maybe a neighbor, a friend, you, you know God's calling you to, to tell them about Christ or to, to show his love to them and, and you're fearful, about how that might be received or maybe God's calling you to a ministry or, or giving you a calling in your life but you know there's there's fear that keeps you from that and so often this can happen and happened in Samuel's life but but God says look I have given you a calling and that calling is greater even than the grief and fear that you're experiencing and so Samuel does get up he obeys God and he goes to Bethlehem now when Samuel approaches Bethlehem, an interesting thing happens. The elders of the city of Bethlehem come to greet him, and they're not excited that he's coming now it, it, it's something that, that is very different from the way we think, but but you see when uh, when we think of a prophet or a man of God in scripture, uh, we can often think of a guy who's, who's kind of uh, just understated, uh, a person who just spends all their time reading, drinking tea, sitting Indian style, right? And, and so when we, when we think about this man causing fear, I mean, literally these elders of the city of Beth- Bethlehem are shaking in fear for Samuel to approach. And you're like, what's going on? Well, right before this passage, uh, in 1 Samuel 15, we see that Saul had been commanded by God to go and, and annihilate this army, but Saul had allowed the king to live. And Samuel comes in, sees that this has happened, takes out a sword, and what the Bible says is he hacks him to pieces, so this is a little different than the prophet that we have in our brains, right? And so words begin to spread. And people realize that this is a guy who, who if, if he sees something wrong or something that needs to be addressed, he is a dangerous person. And so his reputation precedes him. And, and so I think of Samuel as like uh, the, the, the ancient Israel version of Chuck Norris, right? So, so there's like people like tell jokes. They're like, you know, Samuel one time uh, made a bet with Superman and the loser had to start wearing his underwear on the outside. Or, or Samuel's the reason that Waldo is hiding. Or, you know, Samuel doesn't read books. He stares at them until they give him what he wants, right? So these are, these are kind of the mentality, I think, of, of this, this tough, strong guy that, that means business. And so they're fearful and they ask Samuel, why did you come here? Did you come here peacefully or did you come here to whoop our tail, right? And Samuel's like, oh, it's peacefully. Uh, I've come here to make a sacrifice. And so they're like, okay, the only blood that's gonna be shed is not ours, but an animal. We're good. And so Samuel comes in to the city of Bethlehem, and he goes and he finds Jesse, uh, and he gathers Jesse's sons, and, and that's where we, we see uh, this point of the passage. We kind of dive into the heart, and we see our first point here, which is that man looks at the outer appearance. Man looks at the outer appearance. In, in verse 6, we find Samuel, he's standing before Jesse's sons, and, and he sees the first son uh, who walks out, and, and this is Eliab, and when he walks out, it says he's strong and kingly, right? And, and, and this is the, the tallest, he's the strongest, he, he's got charisma, right? He, he seems powerful, uh, he looks like he just, you know, Strolled off of a GQ magazine, and, and Samuel looks at him and he goes, Okay, this is the guy. He he just takes one look and he goes, Okay, no doubt this is the king, man. He is impressive, he is for real. The people will follow this guy. He must be the Lord's choice. But the Lord responds: Do not look on what? His appearance. We're on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. Now, it's interesting that Samuel hasn't learned his lesson because, you see, when Samuel selected Saul as the last king, he went through the same process. He saw Saul. He was impressive. Uh, what, what the scripture tells us about Saul is that there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. And so Samuel had seen Saul, been impressed by his appearance, and said, well, he's got to be king. He's doing the same thing again. He hasn't learned his lesson, even though he's a man of God, that outward appearance does not make someone a good leader. But if we're honest with ourselves, we, we do the same thing. We can be so quick to judge people strictly on their outward appearance, their presence, the way they come across, the way that they look, and we can be so easily influenced by people who are outwardly impressive. And, And this is what advertisers know, and this is what they use to reach into our wallets, is they know that if they have star celebrities or or they have uh, you know star athletes on uh, their products in their campaigns on their uh, commercials that that we will see that, and the response will be, well, we want to do what they do right we want to buy what they use we uh, you know we can can be influenced to spend money just based on the person that they put on the ads and I think the person that since i've been here about two years in in East Tennessee. The person that I most see this is who? Peyton Manning, right? No doubt about it. So, so if he buys a product, or if he eats at a place, or or he you know drives a car, or wears a certain clothing, or drinks a light beer after the Super Bowl last year, we want that, right? We 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 want to to do, and we're influenced by what he uses, and and, and so. That's how we respond based on his appearance and who he is, and and that can be the mindset we have towards leadership in general, right? We want those kind of people to be the people we follow and who influence us based on outward appearance, but the problem is is that what looks good on the outside may be very flawed on the inside, and and this is uh, what we see. Uh, I I read a story this week uh, about uh, a, a road, a bridge in Minneapolis, called the 35 West Bridge, and, and there's eight lanes of traffic that travel over this bridge every day over the Mississippi River. And, and everyone looked at that as stable, as, as sound, and, and it looked good all up until August 1st, 2007 when it collapsed. Because people couldn't see the internal structural damage that was slowly growing until the destruction was in place. And this is so often what happens when we, we follow people simply based on outward appearance. It looks good. We, we feel like we can trust them. But internally there's flaws. There's character cracks. And the result is destruction. And this is where we see the wisdom of God contrasted with the wisdom of man, the way that we work. Because God was not fooled, right? God saw Saul, he saw Eliab, he sees all of us, he saw the character, the heart, and that's why he rejected them. And that leads us to our our next point that we see in this passage, is that while man looks on the outer appearance, God looks at the heart. Verse 7b, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. You see, God, when he looks at people, when he looks at us, he, he, he sees the inside. He sees the character. He sees the motives. He sees the desires. He, he doesn't look and, and get impressed by outward things. He's like, man, he's not like, man, that guy is just ripped. Or, or man, look at that guy's resume. Or look how attractive she is, right? Or, or all of these things. He, he's not looking from that perspective because he has a very different perspective. He's looking on the heart. And, and he calls us as his people. Now I realize this is an upward battle that we face as, as fallen humans, but, but he calls us as people to, to have his perspective, to, to value the things that he values, to value character and, and faithfulness and humility and a heart that truly seeks after God. And if this is the case, it affects the way we view leadership, the people that we allow to influence, but, but it also very much affects the way we view our own lives and what we prioritize and focus on. You see, as I shared at the beginning, I mean, we as a culture spend so much on, on outward appearance and, and those kind of things and time, money, energy, and, and we recognize that. But ultimately, I wonder, how much do we focus on the way we look on the outside versus the, the status and the, the, the state of our heart and, and our character and, and focusing on the inside? Right? Which do we focus on? I wonder, if we're honest, if we spent... The amount of time that we spend on the inside, so, so reading God's word or time in prayer, or confession of sin or, or worshiping God, if we spent that, that amount of time, whatever that looks like, and that was the amount of time we spent on our outer appearance, what would we look like? Right? So, so often we would be overweight, we would smell funny, our hair would be disheveled. We, we so often focus very differently on the external versus The internal. And and I think the question that I have to ask myself this morning based on that question is whose opinion am I really concerned about? Right? Because if I'm so focused on the outward, it's large. I'm concerned about the opinions of others around me, those who see me, maybe my opinion of myself at some level. When I should be focused and and concerned ultimately about the opinion and, and perspective of God. Right? The heart, the character on the inside, because the heart is what matters above all else, and while man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. So so Samuel, now we, we've kind of have Eliab is out, and we've kind of gotten this this passage from God of, of what God looks at, and so Samuel goes down the lineup, right? He, he, he goes, uh, in my mind, it's kind of like uh, The Bachelorette, the show, right? I hope you guys don't watch that, but if you do, you'll know... <laughs> Um, right, so, so you got the first guy out and he's like a stud, jack, you know, and, and, and you go all the way down to the next guy to the next guy, smaller guy, less impressive. At the end, you have the guy that, you know, honestly, he's just on the show to make people laugh, right? He just wants to boost ratings and, and so they have like Eddie who's in there, who's, you know, weird Eddie. And so Samuel goes down the list, tallest, studliest to weirdest and weakest, and every one of them God says, this is not my choice. And so Samuel's in a confusing state, and he looks at Jesse. He's like, These are all your sons, right? And then we get this awkward exchange where Jesse's like, Well, actually, there's one other one, but, but you wouldn't be interested in him. He, he's, he's the youngest, which we'll see actually can mean the smallest, and, and he's out keeping the sheep. Now imagine this for David. I mean, poor David. This is the most important gathering his family will ever have. Right? This is the opportunity to become the king of Israel. And and Jesse has been asked to bring all his sons together and he forgets to give David his invitation. (laughs) Because he looked at him and he saw what we see in this passage. He's the youngest, the, the Hebrew word hakaton, which uh, literally means like the runt, right? The smallest. Uh, he's keeping the sheep, which would have been like the lowest totem pole job. We're out there with the servants and, and uh the kind of social rejects at some level. He, he's ruddy, which the, the literal word is the same word that we see in Genesis with Esau, red hair, red complexion. Now it does say he's got pretty eyes and a handsome face, right? So kind of picturing like a Justin Bieber type character. <laughs> and he's out like writing psalms and he's out in the field uh, playing his harp and his musical, musical instrument. So, so let's be honest. We, we kind of can understand why Jesse was like, yeah, I mean, he's not really an option, right? But yet what we see is though he doesn't fit the external stereotype of a king, he's the man God chooses. He's not the one anyone else would have chosen, but that's the reality of God seeing things from a different perspective. And honestly, this is, not, this is not like an isolated passage where we just see God doing this here. This is the consistent theme throughout Scripture. If you read through the Bible from the beginning to the end, God is always choosing to work through the one who is disregarded by the world, right? He always chooses, like you keep seeing these situations where you've got like two wives and, and there's one that the husband loves that keeps having kids and there's this other one who's kind of rejected who, who can't have children. God always chooses that one. Or, or, or he chooses the man who stutters to go and speak. He, he consistently, we see this, chooses the son out of multiple sons that everyone else like doesn't like or, or doesn't think is an option. It's the way that he works, and I think that this is still how the kingdom of God works. When you read the old, Te- the New Testament, when you read the teachings of Christ, you see these themes over and over. The first will be last, and the last will be first. The humble will be exalted, and the exalted will be humble. One of the great uh, leaders of the early missionary movement, Hudson Taylor, who went to China, said. All God's giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned or depended on his being with them. I think that's true when you look at scripture. Men who knew they needed God desperately. And God showed his glory through using people that only he could use. We see this, uh, Paul writing this, when he writes his first letter to the Corinthians, he's writing to the leaders of this church and, and he's kind of describing what they look like. He says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world and even things that are not to bring the nothing things that are so that no human being might boast the presence of God. This is how God works, and we see it most clearly in the person of Jesus, right? Jesus was not a powerful person. In fact, he was entirely missed. People said he couldn't be the Messiah because they looked on his outward appearance. He, he was insignificant. He was not attractive from a worldly perspective. We see uh, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. And Jesus was missed by the world because they looked on his outward appearance. He was rejected, but he was chosen by God. And that leads us to our final point in this passage, and that's that only Jesus can change our hearts. You see, when we read that passage in verse 7, that that God looks on the heart, it's telling us that that God, when he looks upon us, he sees our internal working, right? He he sees the core of who we are. He he sees our our innermost thoughts. He sees our real motives. He sees our true desires. And and he's not fooled or, or impressed by our outward attempts to impress, right? He, he, we can fool others. We can come across and present ourselves in a, in a way that, that's impressive or that seems like we've got it together, that we're, we're godly. We can, we can kind of put on this front and fool others. We can even fool sometimes ourselves. But God can't be fooled, right? He sees to the depths of our heart and if you're honest with me this morning, that's terrifying, Because we know that inside our hearts are wicked and sinful. And we don't want to stand before the holy, just judge of the universe. And know that he sees that. The Bible tells us that because of that we deserve his just punishment, his eternal condemnation. Because of the wickedness and sin of our hearts. And it's the state we're in. And that's why this story is so important, because this is not just a story about ancient Israel, but this is our story. And inside of this story is our hope. Because you see, in verse 13, Samuel will come and he will choose David and he will take him and he will anoint him with oil. So in in this context, they weren't taking king and giving them crowns and swords and all this thing. They They would anoint a king with oil, and his title, the title David was given, was the anointed one. Which in Hebrew was the word Meshach, which is the word Messiah. In Greek, it's translated as Christos, which means Christ. But David would not prove to live up to that title. We'll see in the weeks ahead that David would fail. David would fall into great sin. And the hopes and the promises of the Messiah would ultimately not be fulfilled in David. But they would be fulfilled in the greater son of David to come. You see, generations later, another very unlikely king would come out of the city of Bethlehem. He too would be overlooked as an insignificant boy born in a stable. Ultimately, he would be rejected by men who would look on his outer appearance. But unlike David and unlike you and I, his heart would be pure. He would be without sin. And though Jesus was the only person who ever lived, who had a heart that was without sin, who was truly free from sin, he would take the darkness of all of our sins and failures, past, present, and future, upon himself. And he would take our punishment for those sins and he would be sacrificed in our place. And so if you're here this morning and you've never truly trusted Christ as your Savior, the the message I want you to hear is you can never just earn your way to having a good heart. You can never be good enough or straighten up enough or get the right motives to where you have a pure and clean heart. You'll never do it. You're completely dependent on Christ and your only hope is trusting in the one who lived the life you failed to live, and then died the death you deserve to die. But what that means is that no matter what you have done, no matter if if you know this morning that your heart is completely black with sin, if the holy blood of Christ is poured out upon it, you can be made white as snow. But not only can you be forgiven of all of your sins, but the Bible tells us that you can be given a new heart. God says in Ezekiel, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. This is the promise that's made available. We can't do it on our own. We can't clean our own heart. We can't forgive our own sins, but we can trust in the one who has done everything necessary to provide us forgiveness of sins and a new heart through his spirit. If you know you've never done that, if you know you've never truly trusted Christ, you know you're still lost in your sins, there are people in the care and prayer room this morning in the foyer who would love to talk with you and pray with you about trusting Christ. But maybe there's some in this morning who say, I I have turned from myself, I have trusted Christ, I have been saved and I know that. The message this morning is that you must remember that that God will settle for nothing less than owning your heart. You see, something will rule your heart. Something will be your king. As, As Bob Dylan sings, you've got to serve somebody. And ultimately, we know that there will be something that you seek after. It may be maybe it's the approval of, of others. Maybe, maybe it's a person in your life who's a leader or a person of influence. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your own physical pleasure. But if you're honest this morning, who or what owns your heart? Who rules your heart as king? And what I wanna say this morning is that if, if that if the answer to that question is anything other than Jesus, it will end up failing you like Saul. It may sparkle, it may be pleasing to the eye, but it will never satisfy your heart. Maybe if you're honest, you know that used to be Jesus. There was a time when Jesus really did have your heart, but something else has crept in and something else has taken that place. And the call is, this morning is to turn, to repent, to, to turn away from seeking after that and to surrender your heart anew to Christ. Because Jesus, the son of David, is the only king who will never fail you. And he's the only king who, when you fail him, he gave his blood to forgive you. And unlike other kings, he doesn't want your stuff what he wants is your heart and because he loves you he won't settle for anything less he's the only king that is worthy of your heart and he's the only king who will satisfy your heart let's go to him in prayer father we are thankful this morning for the fact that we are not left alone to follow the natural course of our hearts, to follow the natural desires that we have because we know that the end of that is destruction and death. But Father, thank you that you have come to us, that we have rebelled against you, that you have come to us in the person of Jesus. And that though he never sinned, his heart was pure, that he gave his life on the cross, that he took our sins upon himself to pay their penalty for us. So Father, my my prayer and my desire for this church is that we would be a people who in response surrender our hearts to Christ. And that if there's things we're serving, is there things that are holding that place in our heart that that don't belong there? I pray for your spirit's power to, to turn from those, to return to our first love and to trust in Jesus our King. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com.